All right, there's a list. Take a look at the list. Um, I moved some. I, I, it's a relatively short list because I have a very focused goal for this episode. Um, but I will invite each of you to look at the l- part down lower. You, you have a focused goal for this I, episode? I do, yeah. This is like, I have very, there's some really interesting subjects that I get the three of us together to talk about. How many years has it been? 11? Yeah, 11. 11? <laughs> 17? 17 years, and now you're just getting around to having a focused plan? Yeah, okay. All right. All right. All right. Someplace here I have the list. There it is right there. Um, yeah. So yeah, the I things see. that are down lower there, uh, probably not going to get talked about. Anything there that either of you wants to promote up to the list? Um, Santa Clara um, is messing around with, with, with well, it's a whole mess. I don't even know what to say about unleaded um, gas anymore. Yeah. Um, did you guys see the thing where Long Beach, um, Long Beach did a whole press release and the mayor came out and everything about how they were going to start doing uh, unleaded uh, aviation fuel and all they have is that 94 and I asked them the other day, yeah, I said, so how many yeah, tanks have yeah. you sold? And they said, we sold two tanks the first day, and we haven't sold one since. Yeah. That was three months ago. Yeah. that's Really? Yep. Wow. Yep. All right, then. Let's see now. Um, I don't know which of these two things I want to go with first. Drone swarms or... Oh, let's stop right there. Yeah. Define a drone storm. Not storm, swarm. Swarm. A, a a a coordinated group of more than more than one drone. Okay, um, because the FAA has has blessed these things. Um, have you seen this story? Let's see now. It's, I, I saw the headline. I'm like, what now? Yeah, FAA approves inspection drone swarm. I, I you know, this is a thing for me with me and drones. I I'm, I, ha- I have this love hate relationship with the whole concept of drones. And, uh, um, you know, because it's like, I love the technology and it's fascinating and, and you certainly get some you know, interesting photography that can happen from drones, but I really, really worry about them taking over the airspace. And this is an example of this. So, uh, FAA, this is from, uh, AvWeb, um, FAA approves inspection drone swarms. So apparently this particular company, although it's an Israeli company, it gets, it operates in the United States and it's been given permission to operate up to 30 drones under the control of a single pilot beyond visual line of sight. All right. Which I think that's the, that's the money concept right yeah, there. All yeah. right. Um, you know, because we've got a lot of people running drone swarms um, that are, you know, like all these uh, AV things, these, uh, these you know, aerial shows um, are, are drawn drone swarms technically. But, uh, but here's the part that I really, that, that catches my, so first of all, drone swarms scare the living daylights out of me. All right. It's like, I don't know if this is a, this is just kind of an extension of my, you know, I don't like bees. I got, I got swarmed by bees when I was a teenager or something, you know, but I don't like drones. The idea of drone swarms makes me kind of spooked. Um, um, the last graph in this article though, says something interesting. All right. It says that, um, Although the the approval talks about single pilot control, the bottom graph says that the drones, in fact, are fully autonomous and they are only operated under pilot supervision. Okay. Do you know how that works, Jack? No. How does that work? So essentially kind of it's, it's pre-programmed. It's much like the same AV drone shows that we see from, from what I understand, because I have a buddy who does this from what I understand is they, um, 
they have a set GPS area. And so, the, so the, he does it with single drones for inspection things, but it, he, it would in fact be the same with this, where they essentially say you're to go from here, from this point to this point, and we need you to do these tests while you're doing that at this speed and, and go. And so it's not like somebody sitting there with a remote telling it what to do. The operator is literally sitting at a computer, just like when you see the big, the big drone shows we now see at all these events. They have it all programmed, and the operator is literally just hitting go and yeah. watching the feedback from all the drones to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, and I can imagine that working, and I can also imagine it not working. And uh, so, I don't know. Yeah, if one drone show? Yeah, well, you know, so... Anyways, Jeb, you're awful quiet. You're not worried I, about I was just bees. Going, I was just, some people won't get this, but I'm just simply going to say, Tippy Hedron, please call your office. Yeah, there you go. See, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about, okay? You know, it's like the next press release will be FAA approves AI systems controlling drone swarms, okay? Then we're talking. Then, then we're off to the races, so to speak. So um, to speak. Yeah. So to speak. Anyways. Um, All right. Yeah, well. well, well, I mean, I'm curious if they have to file an FAA flight plan. I'm sure. That's a a good question. I don't know how that would work. Um, Do, you know, I I don't know. I mean, there's. I don't don't know how that works either. Um, Some operations, I I, I simply don't know. Right. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Well, all right. That is what it is, I guess. And, uh, and we can be worried about it or not worried about it. The other weird story here was, uh, the ice runway landing. This is like, this is it just... wasn't a landing. That was a splash. No. Well, I don't know the story. I'm, the story you pointed us to here, airplane breaks through ice on upper red Lake, which is apparently in Minnesota. Um, pilot and passenger are safe after their single engine airplane broke through the ice on Northern Minnesota's upper red Lake Tuesday morning. So the pilot, reported after the fact that uh he was confident that the ice was thick enough but that he he sk- he lost he basically lost control and went off the runway so to speak all right and that the ice that he ended up on was not the ice he intended to be on and that's the ice he fell through so how is this different from like uh, you know it's, this is like a ice ice uh, uh, a ground loop it's an ice loop it's an ice loop that's what it is you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it, he, he, sure. he, ta- he taxied on the thin ice. He, the airplane fell through the ice. Uh, wait a minute. Brings back the whole thing to your wife saying you're on thin ice, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All I know is that the, the second graph here says the pilot found what he thought was a safe landing spot, but had difficulty slowing the plane once they touched down. Yeah. Uh, think So. All right. You did that a couple of years ago, right? You went out on the ice with a buddy of yours. I did, but it was so yes. Although we were not in a wheeled airplane, we were in a ski attached airplane. We were in in a ski equipped Cub. Um, But lots of people land on that, and they haven't done that. This is the Alton Bay Ice Runway, um, and they haven't done it in a few years now because it doesn't get cold enough. Um, the last few years and maybe now forever um, for that ice to get thick enough. Um, uh, in the case of the Alton Bay ice runway, which is actually a, a, an actual, I don't know what the right term would be, certified airport. It's a real genuine charted, sure. registered airport. 
And um, in the summertime, it's it's a seaplane base. But in the wintertime, of course, it's ice. And there are people there who are responsible for declaring that it is safe or absent that, not safe. Um, and it's been a few years since they've judged it to be safe. Um, so, and I'm sure it's not because the, I mean, things are not frozen here yet. I mean, like lookout point. There, yet. <laughs> there's, there's no ice, basically no ice on, on, uh, on, uh, on our lake at lookout point um, yet. Um, so anyways, it's, uh, so I'm not all that surprised that up, even way up in Minnesota, the ice is not real thick yet. But yeah, I'm sorry, Jeb, you were saying something. No, I was just going to say, it gets that cold up there where you are. <laughs> yeah, it's not <laughs> lately, man. This is just crazy. We Well, anyways, I, I'm going to come back to weather in just a second. But first, I'm going to say welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson coming to you from uh, uh, wet and wild. Uh, from from the anyway, let me do this. Let me do this differently. Coming to you from high atop the banks of the wet and wild Cochico River here in Dover, New Hampshire, Stratford County, New Hampshire. Um, we just got uh, a, a three and a half inch rainstorm in about a twenty four hour period, um, and uh, that's notable for a number of different reasons. First of all, that's a lot of water. Um, in an area that's already ground saturated, so it didn't get it. It just kind of ran off. Um, the rivers were roaring here. I, I posted a YouTube video of, of the of, of the uh, wild and and roaring Kachika River. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and uh, and we had had another two inch. So we had three inches in in like the last couple of days. A week before that, we had two inches, um, and uh, that's a lot of water. And it's real. It's especially it, you know, it makes me happy that it wasn't snow because if we had had that much snow um, in a in a ten day period, it, it would be a whole different environment up here. But anyway, so that's what's going on up here. Joined here uh, in our uh, virtual hangar by two of my very very good friends here. One of those is coming to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Uh, that is Jeb Burnside. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You um, had some rain too, though, right? Yeah, we did have a little. Um, the pond is refilled. Excuse me, the lake is refilled. I don't want to confuse you. Um, and, <laughs> Whatever you say. Whatever and, you say. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it, it came and it went um, not nearly as badly um, badly damaged or badly affected here as uh, up the coast. Uh, like South Carolina got walloped. Um, y'all are lucky, though. That thing didn't turn in, that it didn't start overriding um, colder air. I, I mean, absolutely. It, it had plenty of moisture. In it it sure did. That's what I'm it, saying. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. the rule of thumb always has been ever since all my life. The rule of thumb is that an inch of rain is a foot of snow. Yes. And, uh, and so we had three and no, not, I'm not exaggerating. We had three plus inches of rain in 24 mm-hmm. hours. That would have been just nightmarish, especially mm-hmm. if we'd had two feet of snow a week earlier. So uh, we, we dodged you got, a bullet you had on two this. Feet, you had two feet of snow? No, we didn't. We had two inches oh, of rain oh, a week, oh, uh, 10 oh, days oh. earlier. So if they had both been snow, oh, it would have just yeah, been, yeah, yeah. been crazy. So yeah. anyways, um, a lot of changes in your aviation world, Jeb. We're going to come back to that in just a couple minutes, though. So we'll talk oh, We'll talk more okay. about that later on. As a little teaser. That was a little... That was a little uh, foreshadowing? Uh, foreshadowing. Yeah, that's right. Just trying to kind of, trying to keep the audience engaged here, right? Um the other uh, good friend here in the virtual hangar is, uh, let's see, uh, today you're from somewhere near Denver, Colorado. This is uh, Drew Poli. Hi, Drew. How you doing? Hey, Jack. I'm good. How are you, buddy? Good, good. Um, for years, I've called you 172, Drew. That's not going to happen much longer. That's another little bit of sh- foreshadowing here, but we'll come back to that mm-hmm. one in a little while, too. Uh, what's going on with you, Drew? How you doing? 
I'm good. I'm good. I'm grateful that uh, I'm in Denver, not back home, because California, the coast, is getting hammered. My uh, my landlord said that they got five inches of rain yesterday. Yeah, yeah. That's so. It's uh, like I'm grateful I'm not there. <laughs> it's wet all over. It's wet all over, and that's unusual. For the, is that is that unusual for this time of year for that part of the country? Um, that much rain. This is that much rain is always unusual. Um, our rainy season kind of starts right around early to mid December. And then we'll kind of go through February. You know, I remember, remember last year we had, um, we had something like four and a half inches in like 16 hours last January or something like that. It was crazy. So it's, yeah. it's been a very wet year. And, and are you hearing, uh, so uh, one of the things that heavy rain out there turns into is uh, it can turn into landslides and, and mud flows. Um, is everything from what you've heard? Okay. In that regard. From what I've heard, um, everything is fine. We've had so many of those over the last two, three years that um, a lot of what was going to shift has shifted. Uh, and thankfully, this year, knock on wood, has been fairly wet. We are out of the drought, which is nice. So it's um, it's it, as of right now, I mean, there's definitely been a lot of flooding, but I haven't heard of any mudslides yet. Good, good, good. Okay. So... Drew, um, I'm glad you're with us this time because we, there's a couple of stories that have been kind of lurking recently, and, and I wanted to kind of t- check in with you on them. Um, so people, long-time listeners or medium-time listeners know that Drew um, has a, a, a Cessna 172, that a beloved Cessna 172 that he flies all over that, that sort of southwest corner of the U.S. Um, and one of the places that you fly to on a pretty... So your business, your work takes you to Las Vegas. You're based in the sort of Los, the greater Los Angeles area, but you your work takes you to Las Vegas a lot. And you use the airplane with great effect to get you to and from Las Vegas, I know, right? Am I right Absolutely. about that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And um, for example, what just a ball, rule of thumb or, or ballpark number, what, what's the difference driving time to Las Vegas versus flying time to Las Vegas? If you know? I, It's half. Let's just say in the 172, it's half the time to fly versus drive. Yeah. Okay. So, so you dri- it depends yeah. on if I'm leaving Santa Barbara or Long Beach, uh, yeah. which way I'm going, but it's it's half. Yeah. So about... Um, what is it now, Drew? A month ago, um, the uh, big event in Las Vegas was this Formula One race um, event um, where they just kind of took over the city. It was I happened to be there the week before on, on my day job and saw a lot of what was going on. And it was just crazy, the, the things that were happening in Las Vegas in order to make this, this Formula One thing happen. Um, and you had been a bit up in arms. We, I, I think Jeb, we we alluded yeah. to this a couple of different yes, times that Drew, you were up in arms about some of the re, the flight restrictions that got put in place for people operating in and out of Las Vegas. What what what, what was that like, Drew? Well, actually, Drew, before we get into that, let me back up a step and just say, uh, with not talking about Formula One, just in general, what it's what's it like to fly general aviation into Las Vegas? Is it is it you know it's because you're right through a Bravo there, right? Is it yeah, but How does they're that really, really good. I mean, so, so there's the three airports. Um, there's um, um, North Las Vegas. There's, I'm going to call it McCarran. I think it's called Harry Reid now or Las Vegas International. And there's Henderson. And Henderson and North um, are both owned by the same company. All the costs are exactly the same. And they're, you know, they are general aviation airports. And depending on where I'm working and the time of year, 
Uh, and what's going on, I'll park at either one of those, depending on which side of the town that I'm working on. And the other option is, of course, McCarran. And um, I am not a, an IFR pilot yet, so I, do, I, you know, I don't have flight plans going in, and I regularly will park at McCarran. Um, and I like it. Yeah. How does that work as a, as a, a VFR pilot getting into getting a big Bravo like that? <laughs> um, it's interesting, you know, there, the, I will say this, the, um, the AT, the air traffic control guys in Vegas area are just some of the best because there's a lot of work and they're always very great. And usually they send me kind of one of three ways to keep me on the side of the big guys. And when they find a hole, they say, okay, keep your speed up until as, as long <laughs> as you can. And, and I keep my speed up until I'm right at the edge of the, edge of the runway and pull the engine and pull up as hard as I can and get down as quick as I can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, I mean, our, and then just get right off. It's no big deal. Yeah. I mean, can you just, like, call when you're within range, or do you have to get a reservation, or how does that work? Um, so it started probably, uh, I don't know, six, seven months ago now. You have to call any of the air. Well, when I'm going into McCarran, I, I typically park at Signature, and I have to call them and get a get a landing number. So, so like uh, it's called an RLM or something like that. Um, and uh, so I literally have to let them know. I tell them when I'm coming. For Henderson and for North, it's now all online, and you have to do that. Um, oh, really? For even for Hend- for the GA airports? Um, from especially during the busy times yes um yeah okay uh, but recently uh, i've probably done i don't know eight trips to vegas in the last six months and each time i've had to have a reservation and and so the nice thing is like i call signature and if the only reason right now why i don't park at mccarran is um is if they're full right and so i'll call signature and they'll say we're we're out of spots we've we've used up our allotment uh, so you can't come here so then i will call one of the others yeah, Drew. So, Drew go who, ahead, who's, who's who's requiring the the um, arrangements, the reservation? Is it the airports? The uh, airports, McCarran County, uh, um, Clark County Airports Authority, or something like that. Um, for for um, for North and for Henderson, it's the, the the thing that owns them. It's called the. It, it might be the that county thing. I don't remember exactly what uh-huh. it's called. I'll look up the the the. Sure. Uh, the website for you but it it is my guess i've wondered if it's the local fisdo or who is doing it but it seems to be the airports okay yeah because if if yeah okay that that makes some sense is it is it geography i mean is it is it uh, parking space related or some other excuse for 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 asking for reservations from what i understand it's parking space okay Yeah, especially like during during F one or sure. during what will be Super Bowl or during NBAA or what was right before NBAA because I flew in there during NBAA too and it was had all the so, so the reservation things are only certain times it's not yeah. all the time so so you have to check um the, I check the website now no matter what and see if it's required or not okay now for the uh, recent Formula One F one um, um, race event. They got even more strict than ever. What did they do? Well, um, first of all, they they only had a certain number of spots, right, of parking spots. And those sold out, I would guess, almost two months before uh, the race in all three airports. So there was no, like, during the, and, and, and they made that very public. 
Like was, if you'd go to the website, they would say there are no spaces available. Okay. Um, so you had to have a reservation months in advance for specifically the race days. Uh, it was kind of like Thursday through Monday is when you couldn't, you couldn't get in. And, you know, honestly, when the Super Bowl happened in L.A., the same thing happened at um, Long Beach because <clears throat> a lot of people would park at Long Beach. And I, when I commute my normal, I land in Long Beach. And same thing there. If you didn't have a reservation, you couldn't land. And even though I go in and out of there several times a week, and I know all of them, the the main guy in Long Beach called me or found me one day before I was going home and said, "Do not come during Super Bowl because we're all we're all booked. All of our spots are booked up, and that's across the whole airport." And so it's kind of the same thing there. Was that all the spots were just pre booked, and so a lot of these um, fractionals that I'll have eight or 10 planes or whatever. They just went ahead and booked all of them and not cheap, by the way. Yeah. Not cheap. 10, 10 grand to, to land. It was $10,000 landing fee during, during F1 or Super Bowl. No, during the F1. Yeah. Okay. So even, even if I, and well, you're probably going to go to this, but even if I was going to go land at North because my plane was at North until, I don't know, seven days before the race started, uh, the, the, the plane was there because we were loading in and I needed to go home for a couple of days. Um, and when I landed, they just flat out said, do not come back because even if somebody drops you off, it is a $10,000 landing fee. I said, even in a 172, they said, it does not matter. If somebody's landing to drop off a passenger, it's $10,000. And I read a story that suggested that um, if you came in without a reservation and you were trying to just like game the system and you, you, you arrived and you said, you know, I need gas. I can't go away. I need gas. Um, you could, you could land, you could not take on or, or discharge any passengers. You could get gas and then immediately take off after I'm assumed being billed the fee. Um, I, I read that story. I don't know how true that was, but they were that strict about the whole thing. People were trying to game this. They were worried about people gaming the system. So, uh, you were concerned, Drew, that that this was okay, that that it was reasonable to don't just shake nod. I can see Drew yeah, yeah. on the screen. Don't just <laughs> nod. It's radio, Drew. You got to talk. Um, I know. You were concerned whether it was reasonable for them to lock down the use of a public asset like a like an airport this way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, I, I can understand them saying even up to like a thousand dollars. If you're going to land your 172 and drop somebody off or pick somebody up because it's a very, very airspace, busy airspace, it's a thousand dollars. Right. But at $10,000, I mean, the only people that can afford that are the, are the very, very wealthy. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, I had a real problem with that because our tax dollars help with all those. Yeah. By the way, are you sure it was 10,000? That's, that's a bigger number than I remember. That's um, what I was told. It was $10,000. Okay. $10, okay. All right, then. Yeah, because yeah. whether, whether or not, I, I think you told me, and I think I heard somewhere else as well, that they ended up not being as busy as they thought they were going yeah, to. Yeah, apparently. And that was true with the race in general. I mean, they were charging exorbitant rates to just go watch the race until about two weeks out when they realized they weren't even at 50% capacity. Yeah. Hotel numbers started to drop. The, the race cost was 
went cut by right. like 70%. So I think you told me that that rate yeah. dropped. And again, this was just a, a report I saw, so I can't I can't attest that, that it's absolutely true. But I did, so, you know, I mean, you were there too, Drew, but I, I was there, so you, you were deep into the belly of the beast. Um, I was actually working a different event at one of the hotels in Las Vegas the week leading up to the Formula One event. And, uh, and there were sort of two stories that were really catching my attention um, regarding the F1 um, in that week prior. One was that the locals were hating the whole idea. Holy moly, the whole locals were not happy with all the restrictions and all the weird construction and the road closures. They were not happy. And the other thing was that um, they were starting to to get the uh, indication that just what you said is that um, ticket sales and hotel bookings and were not what they were expecting. And I did hear a story in the last couple days that they reduced that, what I've called a landing fee, um, to um, still a big number, but a, a lower number. And uh, so I don't know, you know. Well, it was interesting. Um, I, you know, I don't know what I think. Jeb, where do you come down on the whole subject of whether or not an airplane, airport, a public use airport, can be locked down in this way? Fundamentally, it shouldn't be. Fundamentally, there there are access rules built into federal aviation law. Um, you can't discriminate. You, can, you know, da da da. Nothing in there says you can't charge exorbitant fees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, Fair enough. Um, I guess, I don't know if it strikes me as odd or, or, or par for the course. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've, a lot of this has come down to, or, or uh, has come down between um, airports like Washington National, uh, where, you know, you've got not only limited parking space, but limited operational capacity. And of course, everyone wants to well, used to want to land there. We can't land there anymore as GA, but or we can't land there anymore without going through some security hoops. Um, but these battles were fought and, and won basically. Uh, I don't know, sixties, seventies, eighties, where um, an airport would or, or some airlines would get together. And this is why you have slots at various airports too. But some airlines would get together and try to monopolize the operations, and there wouldn't be enough room um, to squeeze in uh, some GA ops. So that the, the equal access thing has been kind of settled. Uh, we still see things like, hey, you know, uh, uh, 172 Drew, can you slow down a little bit? Let this 737 ahead of you because, you know, things like that. We still see that. That's operational. Uh, and... Um, they're not doing that as a matter of policy of access to the airport. They're doing it to expedite traffic. So there's that going on. But this has been a perennial problem. And, uh, uh, again, the, the uh, you have equal access. You just have to pay exorbitant fees to, to maintain it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, it's interesting. And I don't know whether – yeah, I had forgotten that the Super Bowl is in Las Vegas um, in a couple months. So, yeah, here we go again. Um at least they don't build out the streets. It was crazy, Drew. You, I mean, you obviously know um, the the way the streets. They they basically put, uh, yeah, they basically put you know fencing down both sides of. Uh, how long was the course? Like three miles or something 3. like that. Three point two miles. Yeah, I think three point two, three point seven, something like that. Yeah, great big loop that went all around town. Went down the down the the, the Las Vegas Strip from basically the 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 
two far ends of it almost, um, and then looped around to one of the parallel streets, um, and uh, I had a heck of a time. I went down to visit Drew at uh, at his uh, project where he was working um, one evening, and uh, and and there's this street. It's it's a it's a you know not a very busy street, Koval Street, right? Cool. Drew? Yeah. Yep. And Koval is a public street. You can walk up and down Koval, no problem. All right. And uh, I even asked beforehand. I said, Am I going to be able to walk up and down Koval? And they said, Yeah. And uh, no, you couldn't walk up. You could walk most of the way on Koval because Koval was one of the race streets, and so it had it had fencing on both sides and and all kinds of infrastructure for the race. And I reached a point where they basically just stopped me. I mean, and I was and Drew, you know, I was like there. I was like almost literally within a stone's throw of where you were, and they would not let me go any further. Um, I almost had to turn around, backtrack, and, and walk around the long way. Fortunately, you had passes and were able to come out and rescue me. But, uh, um, yeah, it was crazy, the the the, uh, the infrastructure. And apparently 10 years, right? This is going to happen every yep. year for 10 years, so mm-hmm. they say. We'll see. The amazing thing to me, Jack, so the only this is the only road course – in the world where they don't completely shut down the roads. The amazing thing to me was so when they would get done with their, um, with their practice races at night and they would open the strip and, um, and Harmon back up because the, because the, the, the cars came down the strip and then turned down Harmon and then kind of came through the paddock that was in the land they built right. and around and then out on the But the, the strip and Harmon, during the day, even the day of the race, were wide open. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I you know I give them credit for trying, but it, uh, the locals did, were not happy. Did you say they're going to do this for the next ten years? They're going to have a Las Vegas Grand Prix. Uh, uh, yes. For the next, every year for the next ten years. Yes. Serious. They signed. Wow. A, they signed a ten-year contract. It's the only race in the world that is actually owned by Formula One. That's how badly they wanted it in Las Vegas. So huh. it's not owned by another sponsor. It's not owned by the city. It's owned by Formula One, and they have a a ten so, year, from what I understand, a ten year agreement on the roads. Yeah. So, I mean, and one would think that they've learned stuff. I mean, you, Jeb, uh, uh, Drew, you and I both know as events people that you do it the first time and you learn a lot, and 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 if you do it again in a, in basically the same location, you 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 can you can smooth things out. Some things will never get easy, but some things do. We'll see. Anyways. It'll be interesting to see what happens next year. And it'll be interesting to hear about what the uh, flight restrictions are for the Super Bowl. I'd forgotten about that one. So, yeah. Okay. What else here? Um, So, um, last episode, Jeb, you and I talked about your adventure traveling up to Virginia to have Christmas or correction, um, Thanksgiving with your kids. Um, And uh, I don't know whether we mentioned it explicitly, um, but um, I may have alluded to the fact, and I know over the past couple months we've alluded to the fact that you had some cool new avionics put in your airplane. Uh Um, I guess, depending on your definition of cool. I saw a picture, man. It looks pretty cool to me. Um, Tell us, describe for us what you did to your airplane, what you've added, what you took out. Basically took out all the mechanical instruments, uh, the vacuum system. Um, and, uh, except for one instrument, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and, uh, replaced it all with a brand new glass panel. Uh, this one was from Aspen. It's Aspen 2500 Max, I think it's called. Um, it's a three screen, uh, installation, uh, PFD in the middle, uh, and two MFDs on either side, uh, and MFD on either side. Um, so far, I've got about 20, 25 hours on it. 
Um, Look at that. Jack uh, just sent me a picture. That's pretty. Jack just just sent uh, me a picture, and that's pretty. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. I showed it to someone yesterday. Now, the pilot yesterday said, that sucks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um, Anyway, it it is what it is. Um, um, Got a new uh, floating panel to mount it all on, so uh, some of the old holes aren't there, and and, uh, uh, that's all nice and clean and and, uh, 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 powder-coated and yada, yada. Um, but I'm, I'm slowly, slowly, I, I, I think I said in the last episode, there's, there's three basic phases of, of understanding a glass panel installation. Um, first one is, uh, now what's it doing? Yeah. The second one is, I didn't know it did that. <laughs> Yeah. The third phase is, yeah, it does that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, all so kidding aside. I, I'm, I'm kind of in the second phase right now. Okay. Uh, where yeah, I kind of know it does that. I don't know how to find it uh, through the menus and whatnot. Or um, how did I get, you know, how did I get that screen and how can I get back to yeah, it? Yeah, well, it's, that's. Uh, yeah. That's the perennial computer. We do that with with any kind of computer all the time. It's like, you know, I found this menu item the other day. Where is it now? Oh, my gosh. I can't remember how I got there. Um, Yeah, um, it's pretty cool. And it's a real learning experience, though, isn't it? You're almost learning how to fly the airplane again. Exactly. I mean, and I think you and I talked about this briefly. I I don't know if it was online or or just in a different conversation. But um, it's one thing to um, see a, a shape. Uh, an angle, for example, a, a needle pointing slightly above level, and maybe moving a little bit, maybe, maybe going one way or the other as it as it does so. It's one way to it's one thing to see that instant or realize instantly that 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 altitude or that airspeed is increasing uh, or, or or decreasing. Um, it's a completely different observation to read text. And understand that that means two thousand, not two hundred, mm-hmm. or or that it's in fact a two and not a five, and then translate that into oh okay, and now it's going this way now. Does that, oh, I'm climbing. Okay, okay. That that it, it takes longer at least initially for me, or has anyway taken a little bit longer initially for me to um, translate what that text says into that same kind of angular motion. Yeah. Um, two questions, and I'm going to let Drew, because yeah. I know Drew has some yeah. questions. Yeah, he's chopping uh, up the bear here. I know he is. Um, two questions. First of all, what was the experience of getting the gear installed like? Was it uh, normally painful, or, or what was that like? <sighs> I, I don't know if people heard That's that sigh. That's not a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people heard that sigh, but I did, yeah. It was, um, it was frustrating. Yeah. Um, um, I think all the kinks are worked out. I'm, I'm going to fly some this weekend. Uh, and I just got it out of the shop again, uh, tweaking up the autopilot. And um, that seems to all be working as it should now. So I'm looking forward to actually getting some some uh, 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 2X's <laughs> experience yeah. with, with this thing. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I can do just about anything with it already. It's just it takes me longer to configure it than it should. Yeah. And, and, I mean, uh, things one, like that. One I don't know question. what my preferences are. Okay. One last question about the installation, if you don't mind me asking. Um, what was the ratio of what you thought going in, the 
you know, the, the downtime of your airplane was going to be versus what it ended up being. Did it take twice as long? Did it take 10% yeah, longer? I, I, I will say that the shop never put a label on it. They never said, it's, you know, basically said it's going to take what it takes. Right. Uh, but this isn't my first rodeo. And um, sure, given the extent of work, uh, there was a lot of, there's a lot going on. But you're basically just removing a bunch of stuff and then installing in its place, you know, some boxes and some wiring that was built up in a, in a, on a bench. And it shouldn't be that big a deal, or at least that's what I thought. Yeah. Um, but no, the quick answer is it took twice as long as I thought uh, it, it should have taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I'm going to stick by that. Yeah. You uh, you benefited weight-wise. I lost 10 pounds. Yeah? Okay. And I didn't even have to drink diet soda. <laughs> okay. It's a whole gallon, um, man. That's actually my, impressive. My final question yeah. here for now yeah, is, yeah. Um, now. so then the process of learning how to fly this gear um, you know, I, I and and I, I, I from talking with you offline, I know you've been out with Amy a few times, and I uh-huh. believe you've been out with some of the techs a few times. Is how yes. does that work? What have you done? Uh, well, both uh, Amy and I went out a couple of times. The tech and I have flown it uh, a couple of times uh, just to make sure that uh, um, what we're seeing is what we're seeing, what we're supposed to be seeing, things like that. Uh, he showed me a couple of tricks, yada yada. Uh, Amy and I've been have been out uh, getting finding my instrument currency again. Uh, and uh, that's been that's been achieved, resolved. Uh, so now I'm looking to, to try to build onto that a little bit, um, mm-hmm. uh, get a little bit more experience with this stuff, approaches especially. The in-route's fairly easy to figure out, uh, but uh, uh, the approach buttonology can be um, interesting. And I'm not convinced uh, I've taking full advantage of everything. Quite yeah. Well. Do you still have all of the same selection of approach types available to you? Oh, yes. With that, the new gear? That, I mean, yeah. Um, the, uh, did you gain any? Not necessarily. Um, um, the approaches are basically run through the nav box. And this is none of this is really a nav box. Okay. Uh, That's uh, one of the things I was going to ask. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I'm, the, my navigation box is a GNS 530W. Um, and uh, actually, it just got a few upgrades and, and repairs a few months ago, so it's about as good as it gets for a 530. Um, it connects seamlessly to the to the uh, uh, to the Aspen equipment. I mean, I can have a moving map. I can have moving maps all over the uh, all over all three screens if I want, um, and uh, with varying degrees of detail and different different underlying maps, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's not the, uh, the navigation per se um, that uh, the Aspen brings to the table. It's the situational awareness. Yeah. Drew, would you like to have this kind of gear in your airplane? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a sense, you know, I knew it was – I've flown I've flown glass before, Um mainly in Cirruses and some diamonds and, and, uh, uh, and like that. Um, those airplanes are different to begin with. So having, having the same basic capability and aesthetics, um, as those airplanes have now in my airplane is really kind of cool. Um, and, uh, we'll see if it's worth every penny, but it's starting, starting to shape up like that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah. Um, so this Drew, picture that you sent. Yeah. Right, ahead, Jack. Yeah. I'm looking at this in in. So you've still got the 530 in. So you can do weather and you do your, all your ADSB and all that stuff in the 530. Is that no, also? No, no, well, not at all. Not, not all. Oh, okay. Um, but go ahead. Well, I was going to say, because like I'm looking at this in the bottom right hand corner, it looks like that's your weather and that sort of stuff. So I was going to say, like, how much of this is now in there instead of you having to look at the 530 all the time? Um, the 530 never really gave me that much weather. Um uh, for mainly because it's not tied to a Garmin transponder. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, the, I have a, an L3 uh, MGT 9000 uh, something called Lynx, I guess it's called. And it has um, two panels on the on its very front. It's a standard size transponder, but it has two touchscreens. Uh, you can split between traffic and running the transponder and weather and all kinds of stuff. Oh, um, nice. All of that is remoted. Uh, via Wi-Fi to uh, an EFB to my iPad uh, running running ForeFlight. Um, now it's also displayed on the Aspen, both traffic okay. and next red weather. Uh, so that makes sense. So, it, so the Aspen atta- attaches to it, sort of like your ForeFlight would from your iPad. Exactly, except it's hardwired. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the, the uh, transponder and the Aspen equipment is is hardwired between them. Um, and uh, again, display the, basically the same thing. The, the cool thing I've, I've discovered is uh, um, you can set up for flight with one kind of weather presentation, whether it be uh, zoomed in or zoomed out or, or, or whatever. And you can set up the Aspen for a slightly different presentation that'll tell you sometimes more detail uh, or, or give you confirmation uh, of what you're seeing on the, uh, on the iPad. So uh, a little redundancy never hurt anything. Anything. No. So you and so you do still also fly with your foreflight. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, the um, the Aspen has uh, electronic charting, and both IFR and uh, and VFR. Uh, as this this installation also has synthetic vision, um, so yeah, looks know, nice. I can see obstacles and. In, in, uh, uh, if I'm in, if I'm on the gauges, for example, I can determine what's underneath me much more readily, as far as obstacles and, and things like that are concerned. But um, what was I going to say? Um, the um, um, still using four flight. Still using four flights. Uh, still using the uh, the original transponder to to in, uh, in, uh, receive all of this data. Okay. Um, so I didn't go. Um, one of the reasons I did not go with a Garmin um, uh, suite or a Garmin uh, uh, installation uh, is because I'm happy with that transponder, and uh, by design, of course, it doesn't work and play well with Garmin equipment because uh, they want you to buy another transponder. Same thing with the autopilot, um, and I'm happy with both the autopilot and the transponder. So there's, you know maybe 20 grand that I don't have to spend plus installation. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, and then what steam gauges do you still have? I can uh, see in the picture question. there's still a couple uh, things there. Yeah. Auto, simply related to the autopilot. The Aztec autopilot is a rate-based autopilot, and it uses the uh, turn coordinator. Use electro electric turn coordinator um, okay. as its role um, uh, input. 
So I have I retain that, uh, but I don't need it because I have that information duplicated on the Aspen screen. So it's behind uh, a fixed panel uh, um, uh, in front of my right knee. I can't even I can't use it. I can't see it, but I know it's working because the airplane doesn't roll over. <laughs> yeah, that's important. Yeah, that's okay. important. It's, yeah. Um, so that that's really the only mechanical instrument I've I've uh, uh, retained. Uh, vacuum pump's been removed. Uh, all the hoses associated uh, with that uh, all gone. Yeah. Wow. It's much cleaner in, uh, engine compartment. And so you don't have anything like backup steam gauge uh, 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 attitude indicators or 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 any you know airspeed indicator. I actually took out a. Um, an electric full size three well, three and a quarter inch um, um, electric powered AI. Um, the Aspen uh, the, the Aspen equipment that I opted for, if the PFD fails, I can push a button and one of the MFDs reverts to well advert converts to um, uh, the, the same PFD presentation I was using a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Um, just okay. on a different I was button. I was wondering as I'm looking yeah. at that. Is I, I could push the button and leave, leave them all on and push that button, and I'll have two PFDs side by side. Um, um, so that's that's the uh, that's the backup. The other part of the backup is uh, both of those uh, uh, boxes. Uh, two of the three uh, uh, Aspen uh, panels have battery backup. Oh. And that's kind of a uh, something you definitely want to check before an IFR flight. It's it's like a it's like a checklist item. Yeah. So here's here's my real question now. Say you're gonna pop up and go see Amy. From the uh-huh. time you you get in your airplane and you go, what's the difference in time now versus your old steam gauges? For something simple that you do regularly that you know how to do, like. For me, like I know I can get in my airplane and be uh-huh. on my way to Long Beach in, I don't know, seven minutes or something along those uh-huh. lines because I do it uh-huh. over and over and over. Sure, sure, sure. Well, how much more time now is it this way? The the, the system retains this, the um, configuration it, it had when it shut down. So I don't have to start from scratch on configuring things like I want them. Um, I typically don't just crank the engine and start rolling. I'll sit there and fiddle with stuff, put a flight plan in or... I'll fiddle with some other stuff. What you're really getting at, though, is letting everything boot itself up and and you let the Adahar, Ahars, whatever it is, um, um, find itself. Um, the uh, um, Both of the, two, I'm sorry, two of the three Aspens have a remote sensing unit, RSU, RS, something like that, which includes um, air data sensing, uh, as well as uh, a, a not quite um, um, how should I put it not not quite well that's not the right word either um, the, both of them have have their own GPS antennas and GPS processors oh. in them and they're not as accurate or not as robust or or not as something as the uh, the five thirty system is concerned but in a pinch it'll get you on the ground. It might even okay. let you shoot an approach. I don't know if you could figure out, you know, how to shoot it. it, it presuming your your five thirty still working, uh, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So there's other... so there's that level of redundancy. Also, yeah. you got screen redundancy, and you've got power redundancy. Drew, any other questions before we move on to uh, one uh, one last subject here? 
Um, yeah, just out of curiosity, you did you go through your normal avionics shop, or did you go to somebody that Aspen said you should go to? I mean, how did that process work? I don't have a normal, uh, usual avionics shop uh, okay. per se. Um, I had this is not my first rodeo. I've been looking at uh, going to glass for a number of years, um, and. Um, also have a fairly interesting, fairly tight, close relationship with a lot of people in the avionics industry itself. And one of them I've got to know, got to know, is a PR person for Aspen. And yeah. I was chatting, I was chatting with her at Sun and Fun. Uh, we had some spare time, and um, said, "By the way, you know what's, you know, why should I think about you folks instead of Garmin?" And she dragged me over to the booth. And uh, one of the reps there was from a, a local avionics shop. And um, they talked me through a bunch of things. And I said, all right, you know, get, give me a price on some of this. And um, uh, it, it worked out um, that it was not nearly as expensive uh, as I thought it was going to be mm-hmm. uh, to get this capability. Just um, in the in the in the name of full disclosure you believe you paid full price for this i do believe i i paid full price yeah, yeah. in okay. fact the, the the price i got from aspen directly from the factory was higher than the price i got from the uh, from the uh, avionics shop i chose yeah we always give a discount you know good for okay. aspen yeah. good yeah. for aspen yeah yeah because to, i mean that's how it's supposed to be there's shops that are they yeah. should be getting a significantly less than if you just went yeah. direct. So that's exactly. good. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool, Jeb. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, I look forward to you coming down. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it and, and flying, you know, next yeah. to it. And uh, um, yeah, it's it's very cool. Be, be careful. I might put you in the left seat. Oh, let's let's okay. Let's have a serious talk before that happens. But yeah, okay. Um, I, and uh, and uh, you know, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing it with my real eyes. Sure. Um, uh, the picture, you know, not unlike Drew. Because so uh, people should know that although uh, Jeb and I don't have cameras turned on, Drew has a camera turned on on his. And so when I sent him the picture, I saw his eyes go like wide. He's going, "Whoa, this is cool!" And it it does look cool. Um, and that's just kind of seeing this one picture. Um, yeah, very neat. Yeah. S- sort of not related, but related, but maybe related, but who knows whether it could be related. Uh, Drew, let's talk about you. You, so you, I, years ago gave you the call sign 172 Drew. Um, I've long time listeners know, and I won't rehash the story, but you, the short version is that you bought an airplane before you took a, your first flight lesson. You took, you bought it. You bought an airplane before you were a hundred percent sure how to go about learning how to fly. Um, and, uh, (laughs) and, uh, and I, and, and some other friends guided you through that process and, and you just, you, you jumped in with both feet and you have been using your personal airplane, um, just the way we've always dreamed about using their personal airplane. Um, and that's very cool. And you, obviously, I, I know from talking with you how much, how fond you are of your 172. Oh, I love LR. I love my airplane. Yeah, absolutely. But, but as you've as as your sort of flying experience has matured, have you conclu- have you kind of start to think that maybe you need a different airplane? I have, I have. You know, it's 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 something I've been thinking about for a couple of years. I I just um, I need some. I'm a big person, right? I'm six four, two hundred and sixty pounds, right? And um, 
you put my wife and my kids in the plane and, and we did a trip the last time we did a trip on the plane together. Um, and once I ran the numbers, I couldn't put more than, um, two hours worth of fuel in. So if you have to stop every 90 minutes, it's uh, it's not a fun time to fly. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, I, I do production work and I fly for work a lot. And, and, um, you've seen many of the pictures of the things I've tried to, to, to fit into my airplane to get to home or to get to Phoenix or to get to somewhere. Right. And so, um, I did a lot of research. I've talked to the, both you and the Dave when he, when he was live mm-hmm. and, and about, I wanted something that was a six seater, something that could hold a little more weight. And, um, I like Jack believe that high wing flying is the best type of flying. Uh-huh. Um, so there's really kind of only one airplane that would work well for me. And that's a two Oh six. And, um, okay. Um, and about the next week I will be the proud owner of one. You're, Outstanding. You're, yeah. So you're, I knew you were in the process here. I don't know exactly where you are. Is it, you're truly a done deal or is it, you haven't, I mean, I, my mechanic is there doing the uh, pre-buy as we speak. Um, the price has been agreed upon. The financing has been um, approved. Uh, mm-hmm. As long as we get through this pre-buy, um, it, it will be our property before the end of the year. Outstanding. Very, very cool. Yeah. Um, now, it's it's older. It's a 1966. Um, uh, very 206. good year. Yep, very. I believe it's the same year as your airplane. Yes, it is. Um, and uh, it needs some stuff. It, we call it the Flying Tangerine. It is a beautiful orange. Uh, it's actually very ugly orange, but it's amazing. And um, and uh, it was a jump plane, but for a very small place, um, it didn't have you know a bunch of different pilots flying it. The owner who owned the jump was the only pilot for the last several years. Um, and it, Jeb had given me many things to be weary of about buying a jump plane. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I listened to every one of them very seriously. And then I went to fly with him and you know, when you get in an airplane with somebody who's like, like Jeb or, or um, Jack, you've flown in my airplane. It's just second nature to me, right? The things yeah. that I do, I don't have to think about and getting in the airplane with him and watching him and what he goes through and to you know the way he warms it up the way when we were flying the way he came down the way everything he was just like you could tell he babied that airplane and he was just like look this is this is my bread and butter i don't have five airplanes i have this one and 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 if this thing is in the shop for a month then i'm not making business for a month so i take damn good care of this airplane and he has He's taken great care of that airplane. And so the 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 pre-buy in, in many ways is more of a formality. I, I know what I'm getting. I know where it's at. Um, just having them check a couple of things and um, and it's it's a done deal. Now, that being said, it needs some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are you going to um, do to it? Well, for starters, um, it's got the wiring for an autopilot, but it's never had an autopilot installed. So I do want to get an autopilot installed. Um, it does not have, for its ADS-B, it just has the thing in the window. So I'm going to put a new transponder in it. Um, just let me ADS-B. jump in here. Just for context, your 172 does not have an autopilot. Is that correct? Correct. My 172 yeah. does not have an autopilot. In so many, many looking... days, I really wish I had an autopilot. I bet. I bet. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So um, uh, what else are you going to add or change? For now, that's kind of the big, the biggies. I, I, you know, um, looking at Jeb's panel, I, I, I don't know if it'll happen this round, but eventually, I would like to put a glass panel in it. But it's got um, good gauges so far. Um, but the big thing is, I want to put new radios in it, a new transponder in it, um, get an ADSB, and 
Um, so I can at least talk to my four flight for now, like what I have in the 172, and then go from there. Um, all of those things are expensive yes, um, are. and time-consuming. So for now, I am keeping Eleanor until I get the, this work done. So I'm not, as somebody who, who uses my airplane, um, uh, I, I, to be without an airplane for six months would be tough. Yeah, Eleanor is uh, your 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 pet My name for your one seventy two. Have you named the new one yet? Uh, she is the flying tangerine. <laughs> flying tangerine. <laughs> My daughter names everything, and as soon as she saw a picture, she started singing. We all live in a flying tangerine, <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> well, that's very exciting, Drew. I'm, I don't know exactly what. Yeah, I'm congratulations. Gonna, yeah, we're gonna have to come up with a new new call sign for you here. I don't know exactly what. One that will be quite as rhyming and, and alliterative, but uh, maybe I should talk to your daughter about this. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, you know, but uh, that's very, very exciting. I'm sure yeah. I'm, I, I hope you will share more stories about it um, with us in the future. Yeah, um, just so how hard is it to buy an airplane other than the money? I mean, the money, that's a that's a thing. All right. But other than other than assuming you kind of can come up with the money, how hard is it to buy an airplane? Um. Well, the the thing is, it's not that hard. I mean, you, you and I have talked about the trials and tribulations I went with, through when I bought Eleanor because I didn't do stuff like a pre-buy. And so the, the purchasing is actually fairly straightforward. Once we agreed upon a price, um, as long as the mechanic says everything looks good. Uh, and, and honestly, the funding was very easy. I, I don't know if I should say or not, but I use a company for both airplanes called Door Aviation. And... Um, they were fantastic to work with. Uh, even the first when I bought the first airplane that, you know, they had, they just needed a couple of pieces of paperwork that obviously the normal things and you've financed it for 20 years. Um, so, so the payments aren't massive and, and the FAA paperwork is one page. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's very simple. Very straightforward. The FAA paperwork. Yeah. You yeah. went, I believe Drew, you've told me over the, over this time you went with the two hundred six as opposed to some of the other possible choices um, for insurance reasons. Is that a thing here? Well, I mean, I love the two hundred ten. Don't get me wrong. And the difference between the two hundred six and the two hundred ten is about fifteen knots and um, and uh, retractable gear. And insurance is about ten thousand dollars different a year. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I'm very close friends with my um, with with the person who. Um, I get my insurance through, um, and he and I have talked a lot about this and yeah, the, 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 the cost and the cost for the 210 insurance keeps going up and up. And, um, a lot of, uh, people who are older, who own two tens insurance just won't cover it anymore. They yeah. just won't. Yeah. So the so 206 that was my bigger there. Yeah. The 206 is fixed gear. Yes. Yep. It's just and a bigger it- 172. And is is it complex? Is it like adjustable prop mm-hmm. or, or it is? It is yep, it is complex. adjustable prop. Okay. Yes. Um, all right. Interesting, Jeb. Other, what questions do you have about whatever? Um, I think it's a solid choice given your mission. Uh, I've I've flown. I used to own part of anyway a two hundred five, which is the, the little cousin to the two hundred six, and it was a rock solid airplane. Yeah. Uh, it was easy to fly. Uh, and, and roomy, it was like, you know, you, you hollering to someone next to you, and there's like an echo, you know, kind of thing going on. Um, but uh, it sounds like a great, great job, uh, all around great job, and good luck for, for sure. Thanks. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited. You know, uh, just 
the the big difference is the amount of weight you can put in a 206 versus <laughs> anything versus else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. It's uh, did, nuts. Yeah. Did, did you tell me, Drew, at one point that um, when you factor in the fact that you get there faster, the the cost of flying this is kind of comparable to the 172? Is that what you told me? It It's, you know, I've, I've really, you know me, I'm a numbers guy, and I've really run the numbers with it. And you get that thing leaned, and it's, he, it's really burning about 12 gallons an hour but you know and, and eleanor's burning between seven and seven and a half um but if i'm getting there for my for my short stint back and forth from santa barbara to long beach it's not that it's it's going to cost obviously more but like say when i go to phoenix or when i go to las vegas that extra speed that you get in and and you get that thing lean just right and you pull the engine back a little bit you're going 30 knots faster and 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 so if I'm getting there and, and you know, uh, instead of three hours, two hours or two and a half hours and I'm burning, you know, now I'm, I'm burning 24 gallons in it versus, you know, uh, 23 gallons in the 172, 23 to 25. It's pretty comparable, actually. So it's yeah. a little more, maybe, maybe five to eight percent more. Yeah. But in the you, scheme of things, that's not bad. Tell you Dave Higdon's story. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Back in. uh I want to say 99 or 2000, I forget uh, the exact year. Uh, He had his Comanche, I had my debonair. And we were both going to Long Beach, I think, for um, the AOPA uh, annual convention back then when they were doing those. And um, we hooked up in Wichita. Uh, His airplane was at the same, we both had our airplanes at the same airport. And... um, he took off first. Long, we we planned the route together, so he takes he takes off first in his Comanche one eighty, and I follow about thirty minutes later in the debonair, and I pass him somewhere around Las Vegas, New Mexico. Oh, I'm sorry, we're not going to we're not going to Long Beach. We're going to Las Vegas. That's where we're going for an NBAA or something. Yep. And uh, so we motor off towards Vegas. I pass him around Las Vegas, New Mexico. We stop in Albuquerque double eagle to get gas i'm there um i've already landed and topped off and before he he lands and taxis in i even directed him in kind of thing and uh we compared notes it took him four hours to fly that took me three hours to fly that and our fuel burn was within two gallons of each other so there's, absolutely there's, there's another data point for you yeah yeah very cool very cool well i think it's fork time here um this has been fascinating uh, yeah. and uh um I, we'll like do I, it again soon yeah well it's like you guys are giving me grief well jeb particularly was giving me grief going in when i said i thought there was some cool stuff going to happen here and uh um i think i was right okay. um, this <laughs> was this was some good conversation and some really interesting information about both of your airplanes um and your airplane situations thank you um Thank you, uh, uh, Drew. I really appreciate your, your being with us here. Drew Poley is a 1,000-hour uh, a private pilot who owns a Cessna 172 and soon an orange Cessna 206. Uh, he flies all over the western United States. When he's not flying, he runs Don't Wonder Productions, a busy special events audiovisual company based in Southern California. You can learn more about Drew's company at don'twonder.com. 
And Jeb Burnside. Jeb's a freelance aviation writer and editor. He serves as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. He's also a frequent contributor to other aviation publications. You can find Jeb's work online at aviationsafetymagazine.com. Also, he does some things from time to time, avweb.com, aea.net, among others. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a digital media producer. You can find me online in most of the places, usual places with the all-one-word username Jack Hodgson. For example, YouTube Jack Hodgson, Patreon Jack Hodgson. On the, in the Fediverse, on Mastodon, I am Jack Hodgson at mastodon.social um, and uh, a bunch of other places. We're going to create a page. We're going to create a new web page on the, uh, on the uh, UCAP website where we list everybody's social media and website um, locations because the list is just getting too too big. Um, anyways, uh, thank everyone for taking the time to listen to us here. Uh, you can follow UCAP in the, on Mastodon at uncontrolled airspace, uh, at mytransponder.com. Um, and if possible, please support this podcast, um, by going to patreon.com slash uncontrolled airspace, or you can make a PayPal tip jar donation care of the email address podcast at uncontrolled airspace.com. Uh, just a, a few dollars, 10 or $15 over the span of an entire year is a big, big help to what we do here. Uh, also, we'd love to hear from you, uh, so you can use that same email address, podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Send us your comments and questions. So anyways, uh, Jeb, was there uh, some words of wisdom you've got for us? There is no such thing as an emergency takeoff. Ah, okay. I like that. That's good. <laughs> and with that, I'll say, all right, wayward aviators, that's enough talking. Let's go flying. <laughs>